Angela, thanks for picking the songs for today's show. <laughs> um, and we just heard Alanis Morissette there to sort of lead us off. Yeah, um, it's like my theme song, right? With all the contradictory parts that somehow all work together and make a great song. And and is that sort of, um, and how long, like, when did you sort of claim it as your theme song? I think the moment I heard it and just thought, yeah, exactly, right? Driven, you know, really determined, kind of lazy, kind of laid back all at the same time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we almost just let the whole song play, but we've got to get yeah, to definitely. the conversation today. And we've got more musical choices ahead, too. Um, before I go any further, we'll, I'll just... Um, read a short bio, and then we'll, we'll fill in the parts um, from here. Angela D. Dillard is Associate Dean of Undergraduate Education in the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts at the University of Michigan. In this capacity, she is especially dedicated to promoting various forms of civic engagement and high-impact educational practices for all of LSNA's undergrad students. Dillard is the administrative head of LSNA's Division of Undergraduate Education, chairs the LSA Curriculum Committee, and works closely with college partners on issues related to teaching and learning, inclusive pedagogies, and engaged learning. Dillard is also the Earl Lewis Collegiate Professor of Afro-American and African Studies and in the Residential College. Dean Dillard specializes in American and African-American intellectual history, particularly around issues of race, religion, and politics on both the left and the right sides of the political spectrum. Her first book, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner Now? Multicultural Conservatism in America, New York University Press, uh, was among the first critical studies of conservative political thought among African-Americans, Latinos, women, and homosexuals. Her second book, the one we'll be talking about a lot today, Faith in the City, Preaching Radical Social Change in Detroit, University of Michigan Press, focuses on the interconnections of religion and political radicalism in Detroit from the 1930s to the 1960s. Both books reflect Professor Dillard's interest in the study of political ideologies, how they emerge, how they get deployed in the context of political movements, and how they change over the course of time. She's currently at work on a book, Civil Rights Conservatism, about unexpected alliances and intersections between the post-World War II civil rights movement and the rise of a new right. Um, and hopefully we get a chance to talk about your new project, too, sure, Angela. Yeah. Um, I have to say, while I was doing the research, um, uh, researching some of what to find online about you. <laughs> um, one of the things that came up was a speech that you did on C-SPAN, something it connected to um, somehow Reg Ronald Reagan was part of the speech. And I didn't get to listen to a lot of it, but it came on while I was just automatically while I was talking to a student. Suddenly <laughs> you, were, you were saying that. So it was almost, it was such a surprising intersection to hear you speaking of... Um, like the conservative right, which shouldn't have surprised me <laughs> once I got to know more about your work and how you're looking at the broad spectrum of political ideology. That it confuses a lot of people to have somebody who works both on a kind of uh, on the left and even the radical left, uh, as well as the rise of the new right and the history of conservatism in America. Because I think I do associate you with the rat more with the radical left. Right. So it depends on which part of my career, I think you kind of, you know, come into first and people um, who encounter my work on conservatism first are equally surprised that, you know, I wrote a book on, um, on the intersection of radical politics and religion. Right. Which, so 
And that's the book that we've got on the table with us today. So, and was this, um, does this have its, like, the origin story in your, was it your undergraduate thesis work? or So it was my dissertation, which I finished here at the University of Michigan. Oh, so it was your graduate dissertation. That's right. Okay. So, but it was your second book. Uh, right. So it was my dissertation, which you know got me my PhD, and I ended up putting it aside uh, in part because the work on the right, especially what I ended up calling multicultural conservatism, you know, how do you account for black conservatives or Latino conservatives or gay conservatives, was much more time sensitive. Mm-hmm. You know, so it felt like there was a real window of opportunity to get that book out, to, to literally write the book that I wanted to read, but that I had seen nowhere else. Um, so it was a really exciting, um, hair-raising thing to do, to put aside your dissertation and to try and write another book, right, in a kind of timely manner. But it was actually really interesting when that book appeared. I mean, it was really um, right around the time that uh, George du- George W. Bush was announcing, you know, kind of a multicultural conservative cabinet. And, you know, so it got a lot of attention and turned out to be... Um, timely you know and you know the work of a scholar historian you can't always say that so it was a it was a nice thing I think it was a good choice yes and I got to come back to faith in the city um, what became faith in the city as a much more mature scholar Um, and I in fact I I started working on it and you know to go back to your dissertation is just you know not the most pleasant thing in the world. And it just, it sounded like such a dissertation. It was so tentative and so many things were qualified. And so to be able to go back and rewrite that with a much stronger and more, com- more commanding voice, you know, in the voice of a person who had already been published and had already had a chance to think through exactly what it is I wanted to say. So it was a real pleasure to come back and do this book. When you revisited, when you first looked at the draft, Angela, did you, so you were you able to see it with new eyes then? Because you, ha- you talk about the commanding voice that you could, because you felt like this, like this earned position in some way. That's right. Which you already had when you wrote the dissertation, but maybe well, it didn't. Nobody feels that way about their dissertation, right? I mean, this is kind of your, it's the price of the ticket, right, into the, the profession and, you know, kind of what you want to be and. You still sort of feel like, you know, everything needs to be qualified. Things are overly footnoted. It's just, you know, I think you just think about writing it in a different way. Did you, um, in that, writing it in a different way, did that also include seeing um, maybe some gaps or or returning to some of the research or or interviews or some of the archives? Yeah, I had to go back to a lot of stuff. So one of the things that, that happens over the course of time is that other books get published. So the things that were really groundbreaking in the dissertation, um, kind of it's sort of what becomes called uh, civil rights studies up south, up, up north, right? I mean, the, so there had been a lot of work done in the years in between by other scholars who were trying to figure out what it means to look at the civil rights movement in the in the North in the 1940s and the 1950s and the early 1960s before the action um, moves to Watts and comes back to the North and it's really about black power. So a lot of what was really unique about the dissertation became less unique because other people had just published other kinds of things. Um, and it was really nice to see that my cohort of people start to publish their dissertations. 
and to think about some of the similarities. So their work really helped to reshape um, what becomes faith in the city, because then I kind of had to write with them and write around them and really go back and think about, you know, what's what's the heart What's the heart of the original contribution that I wanted to make to the field? And are you saying that people in your cohort here at the University of Michigan? No, no, just a kind of broader, oh, oh, a broader national, like a national cohort. The mm-hmm. national conversation That's of right. the books being published. So the people who, you know, you're, you're on the same panels over the years. Oh, You've right. been kind of reading each other's work. You're kind of aware of each other's work. And um, it, it was actually kind of a small, fairly tight knit group of people, you know, who were kind of, you know, we're all trying to ask some of the same questions around the same time. Is this when Reverend Hill and Reverend Clegg entered as such vital forces within the text, or were they there from the beginning? So they were there from the beginning. Uh, In fact, the first person that I wrote about was uh, Reverend Charles Hill, um, who had been really active in labor, civil rights, um, communist circles or in and around the, the, the Communist Party, um, roughly from the early to mid-1930s through to about the early to mid-1960s. Uh, and it's wow. actually an interesting story. I grew up in Detroit. Um, my family had a big family, and they lived uh, on Detroit's old west side right across the street from the Hill family. So it was actually pretty funny. Every time the the Hills had a child, my grandparents would have a child. So they're kind of there are a lot of them, and they're all kind of evenly matched in 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 cohorts of age. Um, so I grew up knowing the family and um, hearing about Reverend Hill. Um, and I think you know when I was searching for a dissertation project, I started to really step back and think about those stories. Um, You know, those stories when you're a kid, you kind of roll your eyes and you half listen. But some of that stuff obviously, you know, did lodge itself in my imagination. Because I think in the the first chapter, or in the introduction, actually, I think you you mentioned that. Mm -hmm. Like, can you tell us about some of those stories that actually came came back to actually like that. Well, it would be Reverend Hill marching, Reverend Hill leading a protest, Reverend Hill opening the doors of his church to labor organizers at a time when that was just not what people were doing. And it was a very militant, even radical act to be able to, to, to do that and um, because to stand they, up to the Ford Motor Company. Because they had and spies, do that. didn't they? They had yeah. spies. They threatened to fire everyone in his church who worked at the Ford Motor Company. I mean, at the time, that was, you know, I mean, that was the the backbone of, of the nascent black middle class, not just the working class. I mean, so those were really good jobs. And to risk that um, by, you know, siding with a labor union and to side with a union um, that, that it would have been the, the early uh, UAW, which is part of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, Labor unions were deeply racist. They were craft-oriented. They were exclusionary. So most people's experience with a union would have been pretty negative. I mean, what becomes the UAW and the CIO? They're going to take a really different posture. You know, and because they're industrial and much larger than the craft unions, they develop a different kind of politics. But, you know, in the 1930s, nobody knows that yet, right? Um, So, I, you know, I admired him a lot for as a person who stood up for what he believed and really, you know, put a lot on the line, you know, not only personally, but um, in terms of the people who, as a reverend, 
uh, he has a kind of pastoral obligation for, for, for their care. And, and I think when you, and when you introduce, well, your, the book talks about the, um, the closeness and also the distance between Reverend Hill and Reverend Clegg. Um, there were some, they had some big differences, but Clegg also admired Hill's radicalism. That's How, right. So the book is framed around these two tremendous black religious figures in Detroit, Reverend Hill, who was active in the earlier period, and then Albert Clegg, who is going to be really active in the late 1950s and 1960s and 1970s, founder of Black Christian Nationalism, right? I mean, his version of black power is deeply religious in nature. Um, and, it, you know, a radical figure in its own right. right? so they're both radical. And what was really nice about using these two figures to tell a larger historical story is that you could look at trends about continuity and change simultaneously, um, you know, and really trace the evolution um, in politics and in radicalism and in organizing and the very nature of civil rights itself um, across those decades, using these two figures to kind of root the analysis. So it's not just them, but it's kind of them and a broader activist community, them and a broader, you know, social, political, economic landscape. Um, so, I mean, it really worked well to think about ideology through the prism of biography. And so, and are those part of those ideologies, were those parts that you were shaping differently when you returned to the manuscript? Uh, I think they came in a clearer focus. Um, I think, you know, as I've gotten um, older and more mature as a scholar, it, it occurred to me that the real central question for me really is about ideology itself. Um, and in this case, it was a lot about um, ideologies read through political theologies, um, which is a really interesting variant, right? So for Hill in an earlier period in and around the Communist Party, a lot of it is uh, Jesus as a worker, God is no respecter of persons. Um, uh, you know, what you're trying to do is is to have the social justice ministry that's about building the kingdom of God on earth, um, black and white unite and fight. But by the time you get to Clegg, I mean, it's the black Madonna, right? It's it's black power. Jesus is black. Right. Jesus, you know, is he the worker or not? That's not the <laughs> point. He is black, you know, as is his mother. Um, you know, that, that it's become much more about um, liberation theology, you know, which has a slightly more radical edge, rooted much more in, in a kind of, of, of um, uh, identity politics. Definitely. Well, let's take a short break and sure. then we'll come back. Um, today on the program, Angela D. Dillard is here in the studio. The book on the table with us, Faith in the City, Preaching Radical Social Change in Detroit. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass engineering. We'll be right back. I've never seen a diamond in the flesh. I cut my teeth on wedding rings in the movies. And I'm not proud of my address in a torn up town, no postcode envy. But every song's like gold teeth, gray goose dripping in the bathroom, blood stains, ball gowns, trash in the hotel room. We don't care, we're driving Cadillacs in our dreams. But everybody's like crystal, maybe back diamonds on your timepiece, jet planes, 
love affair And we'll never be royals It's a one in our blood That kind of love's just ain't for us We crave a different kind of buzz Let me be your ruler Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today on the program, Angela Dillard is here. Her book, Faith in the City, Preaching Radical Social Change in Detroit, out with the University of Michigan Press. Um, thanks again for picking the songs, Angela. Oh, yeah, I love that one. It's a smooth song. <laughs> it is. There's some dance party <laughs> happening here at the moment. Okay, um, back to ideas. Although dancing is, is a way to talk about ideas, Definitely. too. Um, so, um, Angela, we've got uh, the book uh, "Faith in the City" here. It's got a foreword um, written by your 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 own pastor from when you were growing up. Yes. Um, could you yeah Could you tell us a little bit about it and then sure let's we could hear some. Uh, so the foreword is written by uh, Reverend Charles Adams, who is still pastor of uh, Hartford Memorial Baptist Church in Detroit. This is my family church uh, for a few generations now. My grandparents joined the church when it was still located on Detroit's old west side in the 1920s, mm -hmm. uh, when there wasn't a lot there, but, you know, there was a lot of commitment, um, you know, so to grow up in a socially committed, activist, religious community is, is, is a really terrific thing to do. And um, I was deeply honored that uh, Reverend Adams agreed to write the foreword for this book because he's got a really wonderful prophetic voice. So one of the, the big themes that runs through the book is what prophetic religion looks like, you know, kind of what it, what does it mean to, to try and be a prophet in your own time, right? To, to be activists, um, to, to have a guiding vision, to have a political theology, while you're also responsible for uh, a flock of people. Right? So it was really terrific that he was willing to do it. And he's known you your whole life. He has known me my whole life. Definitely. Jeez. <laughs> Uh, so the forward is called, By Their Institutions, Shall You Know Them? And I thought I'd just read a little bit from the beginning and then a little bit from the end. And the end, so the beginning says nice things about me, and that's good. <laughs> that's good. Let's and get the, to that. <laughs> and the end really has, um, it captures his own prophetic voice really clearly. And it's the voice that, you know, I grew up hearing Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And so it kind of, it's it's kind of in my head. I mean, it feels like it's been sort of baked into my DNA and has really shaped uh, my approach to this book. So this is from the beginning. For the better part of my life, I have been a preacher and pastor. Therefore, I am intrigued, gratified, and most delighted by the subject, substance, and excellence of Dr. Angela Dillard's Faith in the City, Preaching Radical Social Change in Detroit. It is a refreshing and resourceful presentation of how private faith can serve effectively to create public institutions that act valiantly, impartially, and non-coercively to bring about positive and universal social change. Such religious activism, as is described by Dr. Dillard, as being responsible for the birth and rearing of organized labor unions, civil rights groups, and human rights institutions, does not portray religion as loving and serving religion, but religion that is willing to pour out its life and energy into institutions and associations that serve the common good. In most instances of human progress in art, science, politics, and economics, 
There is a presence of the hidden, unselfish, altruistic, affirmative, loving, lifting, life-giving, freedom-directed hand of faith at work in the world to redeem and advance the interests of all humankind. James Luther Adams, late Harvard professor of Christian social ethics, used to say of churches, quote, by their institutions you shall know them. Professor Adams was paraphrasing a favorite Bible reference that was constantly quoted in every one of his sermons um, by the salient protagonist of this book, the late Reverend Dr. Charles Andrew Hill Sr. Quote, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inv- inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Um, and then he kind of goes on to talk about, you know, kind of the, 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 the political resonance of that about you know, someone in sheep's clothing but a wolf, someone who seems to be saying one thing but is really up to something else. Um, and it really works nicely to, to frame the forward part of the book. So let me just read the end, which is less about me and more about more about my pastor. So he's talking a little bit about good religion versus bad religion, and he says... <clears throat> There is an old black spiritual that asks the question, is you got good religion? Not just is you got religion, but is it good religion? There's a whole lot of dangerous, bad, sick religion in the world. Bad religion can make you hard, cold, mean, and insensitive. Bad religion is worse than no religion. And then I'm going to skip down a little bit. Bad religion assassinated Mahatma Gandhi, murdered Answar Sadat, slew Indira Gandhi cut up Lebanon, destroyed Iran, devastated Iraq, oppressed the poor, made September 11, 2001 a day of infamy, crucified Jesus, killed Martin Luther King, and devastated Yugoslavia. That's why my grandmother wanted to know, is you got good religion? Bad religion takes life, good religion gives life. Bad religion castigates folks, good religion liberates folks. Bad religion talks about national defense. Good religion talks about national purpose. Bad religion divides folks. Good religion unites folks. Bad religion makes you hate folks. Good good religion makes you love everybody. Bad religion segregates. Good religion integrates. Bad religion stays in the church. Good religion breaks free loose in the world. Bad religion hangs around the altar. Good religion walks down the Jericho road with healing in its hands. Bad religion is shaped like a spurious pole, trying to reach up to God without reaching out to anybody. Good religion is shaped like a cross, the vertical beam reaching up to God for power, and a horizontal beam reaching out to people and sharing love, peace, power, joy, hope, life, freedom, jobs, education, and opportunity all around. Is you got good religion? When we get good religion, true religion, strong religion, inclusive religion, we will not be discouraged by anyone, defeated by anything, destroyed by any evil. I believe that Angela Dillard's book promotes good religion and authentic faith, and for that, I am both grateful and very proud. Thanks for reading that, Angela. Um, I love the the line because it's becoming an incantation Mm -hmm. right um when um good religion walks down uh the jericho road with healing in its hands yeah it's a great image i also like the 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 pole versus the cross image it's really you know and that's kind of classic 
Charles Adams. I mean, he, he does, you know, it's, it's the repetition, it's the cadence, it's, you know, it's the politics embedded with the faith. I mean, so that's definitely characteristic. And, and so, and he's talking directly about this idea of good religion right. and bad religion. And it's interesting to then also think about the stories to come of your two main right. figures. Um, I mean, I think for me, you know, I wouldn't use good and bad, um, you know, because those are really, you know, they're, they're deeply normative terms for us, right? Um, and I think one of the things a book wants to do is to play around a little bit with the idea of good religion. Or that, you know, good religion is, is a contested category, right? I mean, people have different ideas about what constitutes good, what's the right path to justice, um, you know, and so I think it can be a little bit more of a debate and a dialogue as opposed to just two opposing options, only good and only bad. And it can be seen, I think, um, like one small example, well, not small, but um, one that I can grasp onto from the, the book is Reverend Hill um, having an open church and, and, and both, well, both and Clegg as well. That was seems something right, that they both tradition. shared was the open for all radicals mm-hmm. for anyone to come in. Um, but, but there was some problems when, um, Clegg was departing more for, um, the, how he was defining mm-hmm. black power with the nation of Islam and, uh, how Hill was, he was seeing Hill as maybe more of like an, an uncle Tom, that's right. Which is almost hard to imagine because he also admired the man Absolutely. and his radicalism. Um, and so you can see like the divisive qualities. But that might be this weird time when this good and bad religion come in because Hill would have said, maybe, I don't I don't know. Um, but that it's bad if you're not, if you're segregating yourself away. That's right. Or, or well, because so- Hill's entire context, again, it had been, um, you know, Black and white unite and fight. It had been the kind of ethos of of the Communist Party. It, you know, I mean, that had that was it, right? That you can't um, that you you can't you can't separate out racially. I mean, for Hill, it was it was unthinkable as a person who had spent you know so much of his life fighting racial segregation. He couldn't see it. Um, as and maybe I, and necessary I, for right. that time, like Absolutely. that piece of time, it needs. He couldn't make that transition. I mean, he wasn't able to. He wasn't willing to. It really ran counter ideologically, right, to, to what he had spent decades life's organizing work. around. Absolutely. Especially the idea that God is no respecter of persons. Mm-hmm. Put that next to Jesus is black and God, God right, is right. God is black identified. Um, I mean, I think Hill just could not. It, it just he could not tolerate it. It was it was an intolerable set of ideas religiously, spiritually, and then politically for him. Would you say it's also you could um the the early like early period with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. where they seemed at odds with their vision for change and how to mobilize. Um but then Malcolm X thought as he was changing um his uh, as the years passed um would you say that there's some similarities in this idea where at first malcolm x seemed opposed to mlk yeah um, i mean there's some so i think you know um minister malcolm x and 
Reverend Martin Luther King, they're they're real contemporaries. I mean, and it's they're important really to say minister and exactly. reverend they're as both well. Faith yes, leaders, thank right? you. I mean, they're really yes. you know um, they're they're deeply religious figures. I mean, they they come to practice different religions um, and to adopt diff- very different political theologies. I mean, that's absolutely true. But they're really raised in a similar time. I think I always think that that they understood each other. Um, probably they understood each other probably better than we understand either of them right now. I mean, I just, I think they got each other, you know, I mean, I think, you know, that they kind of, I think in some ways, you know, they, they spoke a a similar language. Um, Now saying that they had a really different set of ideas about politics. I mean, that, that's absolutely true. But I think, you know, the years when Malcolm X is watching the civil rights movement and, and watching from the sidelines, you know, because the nation of Islam would not get involved in the movement um, you know, I mean, I think he was deeply influenced and, and impressed by what King and the movement was doing and, and was looking for a way of engaging, but on his own terms and in his, on his own political terms, definitely. And he's going to adopt a much more of a black nationalist politics to match much more of a, 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 a black nationalist religion. But I don't, I don't know that they're that. I mean, I do think that there are similarities between those figures and Ministers like Hill and, and and Clegg as well. I mean, they adopt a different politics, but I mean, I, I think you know, again, they, they kind of they understand each other in some ways. And maybe knowing that that the work is continuing, like it's still mm-hmm. it's not finished. That's right. Um, That's right. And I think you know, Greg Clegg becomes very critical of of Hill and his politics, especially when Hill says to the black power and black nationalist um, community, we want to close the doors of our churches to them. I mean, I thought that was a really profound moment in a book. And and part of me didn't want to write that part of the book because I kind of felt disappointed in Hill that he wasn't able to keep that same radical openness. Um, And then part of it became, well, you know, how do you how do you explain and tell that story? Um, You know, it was a complicated moment, definitely. And you did. You wrote it. Yeah. Was that part of the revisioning of the part, like like grappling with that, or had that been there from the beginning? It was there from the beginning. I think I brought it out in a stronger way to say, again, I mean, this stuff isn't, it's not, it's not black and white, right? It's not good or bad. It's not, it's just part of a shifting landscape. And the black church, because it is so politically significant, is a contested space, right? That people were always in dialogue, in argument, trying to kind of work out what they think is the, the, the best vision of a way forward. And I thought that that was a real moment to emphasize that point, you know, and that, that anybody, anytime could be involved in those kinds of debates, especially when the landscape is shifting around you. Especially. Yeah, definitely. I feel like the landscape is shifting now. Yes. So much. Let's take a short break sure. and then we'll come back. Um, today on the program, Angela Dillard is here. Her book, Faith in the City, Preaching Radical Social Change in Detroit. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Detroit City, I said welcome to Detroit City, every place, everywhere we go, 
Man, we deep, baby, when we roll. Ask around, man, they all know tricky. Ask what's good, man, they all say tricky. Click, click, boom, just as soon as we hit the room, you can hear them holla goon squad in this pit, pit. Let me hear you holla goon squad in this pit, pit. Let me hear you holla running out in this pit, pit. So who am I gonna call on when I ain't got them boys with me and the situation gets a little sticky? I'ma dial 911 like I'm off fucking pump. That plug plug, I'ma call that rude boy from Detroit. Trick, trick, quick, come pick me up. Bring them guns, come to the club. Meet me out front, there's some jump off in this mall. Popping some trunk, cause he's drunk. And we may have to lump his ass up, cause uh, something smells a little fishy. And I don't like the way his boys keep looking at me. So homie, come get me. Wonder boys, what up though? I see you rock bottom, yeah, I see you. All my Detroit people, where you at, man? Let me see them hands in the sky. Detroit motherfuckers, who we die. Where's my gangs, cause you know my thugs. Throwing hands up and show some love. And I work in the Detroit city. I said, welcome to Detroit city. Every place, everywhere we go. Man, we deep, everywhere we roll. Ask around, man, they all know tricky. That's what's good, man, they all say tricky. Homie, it's been a long time coming and I'm straight with that. Russell called me the 54 and said, lace the track. It's the beat that you're hearing banging, he produced it himself. My bad, almost forgot to introduce myself. My name is Chick Chick, head of the goon squad and gangster. Been banging the underground since 95. We're bang, elected to be the villain. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Angela Dillard is here. Her book, Faith in the City, Preaching Radical Social Change in Detroit. Um, so we're, we've been talking a lot about Reverend Hill um, uh, in the earlier part of the, the, the program. Um, and so maybe now, and he, of course, that, that makes sense because chronologically he was he was bringing the movement forward and he was keeping it alive. Um, and then there's this intersection of an overlap of times. Um, and we come to Reverend Clegg, um, who also was, he was, he also ran for governor too, right? Angela? Yes, he did. And so he was active in, in many different part, like political circles mm -hmm. here. Um, and what it seems also I'm convinced of after reading your book, um, and even talking to you briefly here today already about this, um, the impossibility of separating this um, social justice activism from the black church, mm -hmm. from the church. It's, it's in inherently within. Well, it's there. I think it's, it's, it's built into at least part of the tradition of the black church. And so not all of it, you know, is about social justice. Not all of it is politically radical. Um, I mean, they're different inflections or different histories. The stuff that I've written about is that strain that's prophetic activists deeply involved in the political world and trying to reshape that political world. It's not the only tradition of the black church. It's just the one that's kind of stressed in, in my own work in the book. And what we also see in the foreword from Yes, um, definitely. Reverend Adams. Um, so, so now moving forward in time to Reverend Clegg um, and some of his <laughs> amazing radical decisions um, in the 60s, was it, Angela? Uh, the time mostly in the 1960s, but, okay. you know, some stuff in the late 50s and some stuff in the very early 60s. I mean, Clegg is already taking positions that are incredibly radical. And one could be a, a completely a radical new vision, or not new, 
but a vision that he puts up in his own church. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a really interesting moment. It's, it's 1966 in Detroit. Um, people are just starting nationwide to, to, to make sense of black power as, you know, a slogan that's been introduced into the civil rights movement, you know, in the South and certainly in the North as well. Um, Clegg is really distinctive for giving black power such a deeply religious twist. In fact, there's one argument about the black power movement is that it becomes de-Christianized. I think this is completely false, and Clegg is a really helpful figure for seeing this. So his church is um, eventually going to be named uh, the Shrine of the Black Madonna, and it becomes part of, of a religious tradition that he helps to found with the African Orthodox Church. Um, so at this point, though, in, in 1966, it's still a congregational church, but he has commissioned the painting of a black Madonna and child, and he's unveiling it. This is Easter Sunday, um, and he, he's giving his sermon. He's in the pulpit. Uh, and, and it's a local painter, and a, a local right. woman has been the model. Yeah, um, yeah. I think so. yeah, so it's a, it's a great story all around. Um, about how this thing came into being. And it's beautiful. You can still see it. It's still in the church today. Uh, Clegg says, Clegg kind of starts by wondering whether instead of a sermon, the congregation would not be better served by simply sitting and admiring the new painting, quote, marveling that we have come so far that we can conceive of the Son of God being born of a black woman. Now we have come to the place, he continued, where we not only can conceive of the possibility, but we are convinced upon the basis of our knowledge and historic study of all the facts that Jesus was born to a black Mary, that Jesus, the Messiah, was a black man who came to save a black nation. It would have little significance if we unveiled a black Madonna and it had no more meaning than just another picture in a church. Our unveiling of the black Madonna is a statement of faith. I mean, so then they were serious. It was not, you know, this wasn't a metaphor. This was, you know, this was a literal fact. And that the, the radical impetus of Christianity was all bound up with the saving of a black nation. And a, and a visual of a white Jesus. Oh, that's right. So right? they were determined so <laughs> to get rid of, right? There were going to be no white Jesus is anywhere near Clegg's church, right? Yeah, definitely. And they thought, you know, they argued that, that, the, that was done to, to mystify black people, to, to keep them um, enslaved, to keep them downtrodden, to keep them passive, you know, and that what you really needed was this vision of a black activist, Jesus, you know, bent on, on his own liberation and on the liberation of his people. And it's so interesting that this, this first, uh, at least at this church, um, painting is of the the baby Jesus. Right. And that the black Madonna is as important. It seems. That's right. I mean, it, it, it certainly, right. It's like, that's it's some the good gender stuff. Happening. There's right. There's some gender conservatism, that, you know, mixed into this radical politics. Definitely. Right. Um, but they were, and they were certainly trying to mobilize around, you know, this idea of black motherhood, you know, being uncompromised, um, you know, and that wasn't uncommon. I mean, even Jesse Jackson, you know, would kind of talk about the fact that the, the Jesus is kind of fatherless, right? I mean, it doesn't, you know what I mean? It's a kind of odd, that's kind of odd, you know, right. so that it really is, becomes about the mother in a lot of ways. 
So that's a long tradition, too, I think, in, in radical black politics, right? I mean, thinking about motherhood and what makes it important. It's also characteristic of nationalisms just across the board to have a bit of a fixation on motherhood and on purity and, you know. As part of the origin story. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's problematic, certainly, from a gender standpoint. Um, puts women, I think, in an awkward position as complementary to men uh, or that your main role is to birth, you know, the kind of um, leaders of the future, you know, those kinds of ideas. You say that um, the the painting is still there yes. in the church today. Yes, very well preserved. Well, the church is still active. I mean, it's an act of faith. Um, the shrine has um, a few other temples in, in other cities. There's an active branch in Houston, a few other places. They they have a farm that's um, in Georgia. I can't remember the, the name of the town. Uh, the one in Detroit is still active. The Black Slate is still active in Detroit. Uh, to the Shrine Clegg helped to, to form. Um, it's not really a political party, but they do endorse candidates and they work on their behalf. In fact, the first time that I went to interview people associated um, with the church now, I was waiting outside the door and some people came out and they were like, oh, are you a candidate here to be interviewed? <laughs> I was like, no, but that's a really interesting question, yeah, right? Because maybe even for the future, Angela. That's right. You know, because <laughs> you really want to get their support because they still have a base of power, which is true of black religious institutions in the city of Detroit in general. It's hard to get elected without their support. And in, um, at, the, at the time when you were um, just reading from the book, the uh, um, the congregation was seven hundred thousand strong, or so. Was it? It was it the great? Was it? Like, it's hard to get numbers. To, okay, you know to really thought, figure oh, I, out. You know, <laughs> then I just made that up because I, I thought I got it up. out of the book. So <laughs> let's just scratch that. Part I'm not sure how many book. people would have been there that Sunday, but it's Easter Sunday, so it would have been a full church. So you know. Definitely. I am not going to go try to work for Fox News now <laughs> with my new facts. Um, uh, but let but let's see. Well, you mentioned um, interviewing for the book, and mm -hmm. and I wanted to also ask you about interviewing um, Grace Lee Boggs, oh, and, right. and if you had met uh, Jimmy Boggs before yes. he died as well. In fact, I think I may have been one of the last people to interview Jimmy Boggs, um, because of the, just the timing of you know when I was working on my dissertation, and you know he was really his health was really failing by that point. So I'm not sure if there's somebody who was there after me, but. What well, did um, you talk really with great. him about? What can you? Um... Well, I wanted their view of Clegg. So one of the interesting parallels between Reverend Hill and, and Reverend Clegg uh, is that both of them worked with really radical political organizations. And so Hill worked with the Communist Party knowingly. Mm -hmm. um, Clegg worked with the Socialist Workers Party knowingly. You know, he worked with um, James and Grace Lee Boggs, who were already, you know, pretty radical. They have a big, they have like the big files and the yeah, absolutely. Know. <laughs> you know, and they they both kind of come out of a bit of a, a, a Trotskyist tradition. Um, and if you know the political landscape, the communists and the Trotskyists never got along, right? <laughs> so it's kind of interesting these two communities, right, grounded by. Not only different visions of faith, but really different visions of, of radical politics mm -hmm. in the United States on the left. Um, so they had great insights into what it was like to work with Clegg, what it was like for them as secular radicals to work with a religious figure. Um, and I think, again, that was really, really characteristic of both Hill and Clegg, that they put together these communities 
where somehow everybody is making that work, mm-hmm. where the religious people, you know, are willing to work with the secular radicals, the secular radicals are willing to at least tolerate the religious people, um, and that they both got that you had to be able to stitch together those communities. For right? Detroit. For, for the, Detroit, for right. Absolutely. Um, so they were really, James and, and, and Grace Lee were really helpful on that. And with just the kind of the radical landscape in Detroit in the 1960s, um, you know, the attempts to build all black political parties, kind of what was what was really kind of going on in and around these communities. And they both really admired Clegg. How so? Um, you know, the, the, the stances he would take. Um, the, I think they, you know, the religious stuff for them was neither here nor there. Right? <laughs> they kind of, you know, kind of made fun of that stuff a little bit. But they were like, that's not the point. And the point was that he was able to mobilize people behind positions that were not easy for people to take. For example to vote against tax millage increases because black children aren't being served by public schools in Detroit. I mean, that was really kind of, it was, I had to be like 1962, 1963, where Clegg is, you know, really coming out strong for that. He wants to just sue the school system. NAACP is upset. They're like, no, you can't argue this. I mean, it was really kind of interesting. And and he was really good. And I remember this. I remember... um, Jimmy Box talking about the fact that Clegg would give money back if there were too many strings. You know, that he was really sensitive to wanting to remain independent. And I think he kind of learned that lesson from Reverend Hill, that you, you've got to be independent of these white business, industry, even nonprofit, philanthropic interests, right? Because if you take the money, that money has strings. And you want to be able to take independent political positions. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes you have to give the money back or sometimes you have to stand up to the Ford Motor Company because once you give in, your independence is gone and they both understood that you're just trapped. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back. Today on the program, Angela Dillard is here, Faith in the City, preaching radical social change in Detroit. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. What happened at the New Orleans? <laughs> I'm back. I'm popular the man. Y'all haters corny with that Illuminati mess. Paparazzi catch my fly and my cocky fresh. I'm so reckless when I rock my Givenchy dress. I'm so possessive, so I rock his rock necklaces. My daddy Alabama, mama Louisiana. You mix that Negro with that Creole, make a Texas Bama. in my bag swag oh yeah baby oh yeah I, oh, oh yes i like that oh miss me i know you came to slay Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. I'm just enjoying Angela's choice of music today on the program. Angela Dillard, Faith in the City, Preaching Radical Social Change in Detroit. And so, you know, we only have an hour for this conversation. And I feel like um, I was amazed, like what you did um, 
how you were able to manage 1930s through the 60s <laughs> in in faith in the city. And then I also was thinking, how can we bring in present day Detroit? And now I also would like to talk about um, how you see political ideologies happening, um, not only in Detroit, but also on college campuses across the U.S. Um, and on our own. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one way to think about the connection, um, it might be the the way that the 60s really looms large for us. Um, so even, you know, when I was first working on the book, the 60s always seemed like the, the, the focal point. So even when you're writing about the 30s and the 40s, you kind of know the 60s are coming. You're like, right? yeah. <laughs> you know, the 60s are going to be the thing, right? <laughs> um, and then, you know, you get to the 60s part and you're talking about, you know, what's distinctive about that era in American politics. And how it's still a kind of Rorschach test for us, right? T tell me what you think about the 60s, and I'll tell you, you know, about what your politics are, right? I mean, that it just kind of, it defines, and it certainly as a person who's um, uh, post-baby boom, right? I mean, we grew up with the 1960s in a way that's uh, slightly oppressive, even, in kind of how you're, you're thinking about your own political life and choices and destiny. Um, like that was the time. Yeah, you know, like, you know, you, you grow up and you remember Gen X, all you hear about is how you weren't as right. cool as the people in the 60s. You know, it's like not everybody could have been that cool. I mean, you know, I've looked they at- weren't. They weren't. And I've looked at some of those numbers. Most people just on college campuses in the 1960s just went to class. I mean, it's just not true that everybody is out protesting and being all radical and cool, right? I mean, you know, so it's not, Right, there's a kind of the myth of the 60s. And I think that that still exerts a lot of pressure. And you can kind of see it on college campuses today. So when students protest, they do it in these terms set by the 60s. Um, and I think it's really hard to think outside of that mode and model. But um, is that useful anymore? I think it's not always useful. This is going to sound a little self-serving. but So the 60s model is that you have the radical students who want justice and freedom, both personal and political. Um, they're anti-war. They want to experiment with education. They want to have a sense of ownership of their own education um, versus the administration, mm -hmm. who are old, male, and white. I mean, this is right. I mean, these are the terms. So what do you do when you have... Um, people in administrative roles who were themselves those people protesting in the 1960s or who have a, a different political view or who are themselves the advocates of young people owning their own education and experimenting with education. Um, you know, where you've got all the people who are a fond of experience and knowledge about this stuff. But for student protesters, they're all still lumped into the, con the category of being old, white, and conservative. Which, you know, being none of those things is kind of weird for me to sort of think about, you know, students protesting the administration when that category certainly includes people like myself and other people I know, including Rob Sellers, who was just named the chief diversity officer um, for, for the University of Michigan leading the diversity, equity, and inclusion plan on campus. Uh, Rob, you know, once protested in Fleming and in a weird way, created the position that he has now. So he was a student <laughs> activist as a graduate student um, with BAM3, Black Action Movement version three, which is in the, oh. the, the 1980s. 
which was touched off, by the way, by by racist comments on a radio station on campus. Really? And there's this great picture of, of Rob Sellers. I actually tweeted this that um, during the, the whole DEI rollout, <laughs> where it's him holding the tape from the radio station of, of the racist comments made. And so it's a, a young Rob Sellers as a graduate student in a political protest against the administration that he now embodies. I mean, so, you know, it's a really kind of, that's not a kind of classic 60s model. So I think young people really kind of have to think more creatively, you know, when they want to sort of position themselves against structures of power um, that have become a lot more complicated and I think a lot more interesting. Not that I want to encourage people to figure out how to protest me better. Let me let me be really quick to say that we have a whole protest plan in my office, so in case that happens. But oh, really? Yes, we do. What does that even mean, Angela? What I can't that... I can't have people occupying my office and kind of going through my stuff and you know having their feet right. on my couch. It's just no. Right. So. Well, that def- that also <laughs> sounds sort of sixties ish anyway. It does, right? That you go and occupy an office. I mean, it's really it's interesting, right? I mean, but it's just an example of how we still are thinking about politics really, I think, overly defined by one era mm-hmm. um, at a time where I think we, we need to be much more subtle. I think um, we need to be smarter. Um, I think it's not just, you know, the good people against the evil institution. I mean, I think it's much more complex landscape. I do think sometimes an administrator an administration or administrators can be helpful, but you have to be careful, right, about how you, you know, partner with them or deal with them, you know, because they'll suck you into, you know, meetings, they'll sap your strength, they're just, you know, I mean, I do think they're things to worry about, but it's not, um, I mean, it's become such a more complex environment to operate on. It's also ideologically complex. So sometimes it's left and right, um, Sometimes it's anti-racist and white supremacist, uh, but that doesn't always map, right? Those are not necessarily the same things. Uh, so I think knowing who an, an enemy is, knowing what the, the context really looks like. So what's the difference between a racist white supremacist flyer on campus, which we've been dealing with lately, um, and you know microaggressions in a class? These are not the same thing. Um, and, you know, I think young people but both need to be dealt with. They both need to be dealt address, with, but, yeah. but they might need to be dealt with in different kinds of ways uh, or in, in a different voice and from a different posture and with a different coalition working around it. Um, you know, so it, it's I mean, I think that those are just two really good examples of how much more difficult this moment is for us politically. I mean, Hill and Clegg, they had really clear... <laughs> Right. They had they had a clear goal. They had a clear things that they were against. Right. Um, I think we don't have that kind of clarity, uh, although I do think that there are certain things that we can all agree on. I mean, I think white supremacy is one of them. I mean, that's a bright line for us. Um, and I think that's a bright line for us as an institution. I don't care where you sit. Right. If you're the president or the provost or, you know, you're a faculty member or you're a staff a member or you're a student. That's this is this is a real problem for us, and and a smart white supremacy is really our worst nightmare. I mean, they're they're mobilizing evidence and quote unquote facts, quote unquote scientific racism. Um, this is going to be really tricky for us to fight, especially on a college campus where we are dedicated to free speech. 
um, so again, this is really going to take us thinking in in much smarter ways, politically, personally, spiritually, um, institutionally. And what about on the community level, Angela? Like, what does that look like? Like, how can we, um, as because there's been opportunities post the the, the racist flyers mm -hmm. to come together at different times as a community. Mm -hmm. um, but is that is that do we do more of that or what or is it more individual life like what what do the individuals in the community like what how do we redefine community to make it for for everyone so they're not things that i have clear answers for by any means but i do think um, yeah, you know, so, yeah sorry we've got <laughs> we've got two minutes we've got two minutes <laughs> see what you can do with that well but i do think you know looking back historically um i i think history gives us a lot of good ideas it gives us a lot of cautionary tales um, and it gives us a lot of sustenance i mean i think um, i'm inspired by thinking about activist communities that came together in the 1930s and the 1940s and, and wanted to do something different around labor unions and justice for people. Or, you know, for black nationalist communities that came together in the 1960s and were asking new questions in new ways, um, really clear about what they wanted to see and some idea about, you know, how to get there together. Um, so I think it's really about, you know, building coalitions. It's about being good allies. It's about listening. Um, you know, it's about seeing our institutions as contested, uh, but also spaces where we have a chance to get together and to, to try and work out our own collective destiny. I mean, I think that's something that a college campus and a church, oddly enough, kind of share, you know, that, that they open themselves up to um, free spaces, what some um, political theorists call democratic spaces, where you can practice participatory democracy. Um, I don't know if there's safe spaces, brave spaces. I don't know what our version would be today, but I think it's really interesting that we use spatial metaphors when we think about college campuses. I mean, they're not all one thing, but they do, I think, give us the opportunity to create those kinds of spaces in a deeply participatory way um, that allows us to, to come together and to stand together, um, try and do what's right, right, try and practice good religion, you know, those kinds of things, and to try and think seriously about what social justice really means and looks like in the world and to value our collective destiny absolutely and the fight over it right about fight over what that destiny is is going to look like thank you angela sure thank you you know come back anytime oh thank you're you. always invited great <laughs> we can talk about my work on conservatism next time. That's right. right. I do the other side. Do. Yes. When is that book coming out? I don't know. You know, I, I spend most of my time being an associate dean, so I don't get to, to spend uh, a lot of time writing it. No. I'm, I'm about, no, 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 75% done. Well, then maybe you can knock off like 25% of the meetings and then go. That's right. I, I maybe. You have to tell my dean that. Oh, okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, people listen. So that's right. the radio. <laughs> Okay, and thanks to everybody who is listening right now, and many thanks to Angela Dillard for being on the program today. Um, her book, Faith in the City, Preaching Radical Social Change in Detroit. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Um, until next time.
Hello and welcome to 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor's Daily Sports Report. I'm your host today, Dalton Pataki. And on the other side of the glass with me, we have Alec, Marius, and Christy Intern. How are you guys doing today? Doing Very great. Good. Thank you. It's kind of a downer outside. Yeah. Oh, it's an awful day today. It's some Seattle weather. Yeah, yeah. I feel right at home. Yeah, 42, a little rainy. Uh, Mount Pleasant right now getting a bunch of snow. So anyone traveling up that way, safe good. driving. So, World Series was last night, Cubs-Cleveland, in case you didn't know. We had a 